Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is made possible because of the sponsorship of my winery, Centralis. But your support is what makes Centralis possible, so really you make this podcast possible. If you get inspiration, information, or even just entertainment from listening to the Organic Wine Podcast, please consider supporting it directly by writing a review or Venmoing $5 to at Centralis or by visiting centraliswine.com and purchasing a bottle or signing up for our email list. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. Thanks for your support. It was such a pleasure to geek out with Martha Stuman about making wine for this episode. This conversation gets highly technical and even more highly helpful for anyone at any level who is making wine or thinking about it. If you want to take your winemaking to the next level, listen closely. I have learned multiple new things from Martha every time I've re-listened to our conversation. The ostensible subject of this episode is how to make natural wine. But of course, there isn't one way to make natural wine. Instead, Martha offers the principles and perspectives and biology and chemistry that can help you approach winemaking holistically with the goal of helping this living being, the grapevine, achieve what seems to be its ultimate destiny. And we do a case study on one of her wines to give an intimate and detailed view of the practical application of her approach. The one impression that I hope you'll get, if nothing else, is just how thoughtful Martha is about every aspect of this process. She thinks carefully about everything from the macro to the micro and asks great questions about how to use human efforts to facilitate all of the non-human elements that work for us to create and refine and protect a beautiful wine. We could not have asked for a better teacher. Martha makes wine in Sebastopol, California, and you can buy her wines at marthastuman.com. That's Martha, S-T-O-U-M-E-N dot com. And I highly recommend that you do try them. We talk about how well adapted Italian varieties of grapes are to making natural wine in California. And she has several examples for sale that show just how deliciously true that is. What we don't talk a lot about is Martha's backstory and biography. So please check out her other interviews on various other podcasts because she is definitely worth getting to know better. Enjoy. Martha, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you. And for many reasons, including, you know, you may be one of the few people who know something about growing Nero Davila in California, which is of near and dear to my heart. And um, you're one of the few people that I just found out have made an aged rosé at some point you've you've played around with aged rosés are you still making aged rosés yeah i, I am it, uh, gosh i started making aged rosés kind of when i started making wine in california uh for my own uh label so 2014 uh was the first time i made a rosé with the intention of aging it um and yeah, the, the varieties, uh, the varietals have changed a little bit over time mm-hmm. um, that I work with for those wines, but I love a good aged rosé. What can I say? The I, kind of I more mean, savory side. I'm a fan. Yeah, I do too. I'm, I've actually put some new American oak and, you know, a year of barrel age and a couple of rosés that we've done. That, yeah, I really um, like those characters kind of when the, I don't know, whatever the, the skeleton of the wine is, is, is flushed out a little bit more. 
with, yeah. with some of that age. Is the American Oak, is that inspired by Lopez de Heredia or? No, it's not. But that's really interesting. No, I, I mean, that's more inspired by just trying to keep things local, you know, Got sort it. of an ecological approach in general to our wines mm-hmm. like from, from, you know, barrel to bottle to everything. Yeah. Um, to the farming and, you know, everything else. But Make, makes yeah. sense. And American oak is cool. I mean, you probably have talked about this at, on other episodes potentially, but you can actually use more of the tree uh, just because of the way the grain uh, grows in American oak you don't have as much waste when you're making barrels as oh, French oak. Definitely have not talked about that. So that's awesome. I, yeah, I fun mean, little fact. It just <laughs> made me love it even more. I mean, it can be, you know, it can be a lot. It's definitely a different impression on the wine. But, mm-hmm. the, you know, the creaminess that comes from that aging too that with rosés because, you know, I love, like it sort of lends a balance that you almost don't find. Like I love the minerality and crispness of a young rosé, but... I sometimes find myself wishing for something that lingered a little bit longer in my mouth. And I feel like that age really gives it like a creaminess that, you know, it uh, you know almost makes it a broader pairing choice for some things. Totally. Totally. Yeah. For me, I mean, I, I love the, the few examples of aged rosés that I've had, but I also, um, I like my wine with food and, and I also love, you know, trying to uh, make things that potentially are new experiences for people, you know, kind of trying to just, just show examples of, of out of the box um, sort of like, here's the generalization about rosé and yet, you know, wine can be so many different things and here's a counter example to that. So that's a fun, fun thing. Yeah. I find a big part of, of what I do is just trying to do something that isn't done already a hundred times so that, you know, there's, you just don't want to, re, you know, rebuild the wheel basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then certain grapes, I mean, the, what we, the rosé we aged the longest uh, is made from Negro Amaro and it's from a specific site that just oh. has, it's already an acidic grape naturally. Mm-hmm. And then this site itself just really, really brings uh, acidity to what is, uh, whatever is planted there. And so I do feel like aging is almost necessary. So kind of listening to the, to the base ingredient um, there was. How, how like long necessary. is a long time? Um, for us, let's see, we age it for after fermentation is complete, which is done in barrel, um, neutral oak we um we age it for about two years depending on the wine uh or the year the vintage um but Mm -hmm. yeah around two years and then a year of bottle age oh wow yeah that's for real so that is like getting into the spanish realm yeah yeah not quite the 10 years that the the lopez (laughs) heredia is but um you know i have tasted so let's see the negro maro we started making rosado we started making in 2015 and I drank one of those 2015s the other day, and it was beautiful. So, yeah, mm. that's when we release it. Um, but I do think that it could age a lot longer. And hopefully yeah. we can start building up a little bit of a library program there. But that's uh, something that's... that we weren't able to do in the beginning of the business, just cash flow-wise. Yeah, yeah that <laughs> yeah. Makes, makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Negro Maro. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you work and have sought out some Italian varieties to work with. Yeah. Yeah, I have. And I think there's a few factors that steered me in that direction. I mean, kind of at the basis of my thinking for the varieties that I work with is starting from a 
a place of really wanting to do as little as possible in the vineyard in terms of inputs. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I went through all of these apprenticeships and I went to school at UC Davis and learned about uh, grape growing a little bit there um, and definitely <laughs> in the field a little bit more. Davis is a little bit more of a kind of an analogy school still at this point, but there is mm. there is definitely a grape growing component um, and they do teach you about different indices you can look at in terms of like basically just a combination of, of temperature and humidity um, as an indicator for how much um, mildew you may get in the vineyard, which is you know, in California, that's really kind of the, the number one and worldwide, I'd say, but but certainly in California, um, that has a drier climate, the number one kind of nemesis, <laughs> vineyard nemesis that you experience. So um, powdery. Yeah. yeah, powdery mildew. Yeah, exactly. We don't really have the downy mildew. It's popped up a few times in wet years. I remember that was like breaking news that Santa Barbara had downy mildew, but that's usually <laughs> wow. a, a European thing. Um, yeah. so or powder- East Coast, yeah, 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 or East Coast. So, um, yeah, so powdery mildew is kind of our number one, I guess, I our Achilles, Achilles heel in the vineyard. And yeah. so, knowing that one piece of information, I started looking to what areas in California have less mildew pressure, period, just uh, naturally okay. speaking. So, trying to make it a little easier on myself. I mean, I grew up in Sebastopol in Sonoma County, which is um, pretty, I would say it's like, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. But in terms of that humidity, temperature window that mildew thrives in, I mean, Sonoma County is pretty, pretty ripe for that. Yeah. So (laughs) growing up in those conditions where you're like, oh, it's, it's foggy. And then it, you know, is this nice kind of um, 70, 80 degree, right, wet, right. 80 degree weather in the spring. Um, so it's not just like temperature and humidity to think about. It's what time of the year is it occurring and what's happening on, with the vine itself. So right. um, going back to like choosing what varietals to work with, uh, again, started from a place of wanting to have low input, you know, wanting to do low input farming in the vineyard. So, um, I tried to search out places, uh, in California that have, um, low powdery mildew pressure to begin with. Um, and is that, that's hot and dry. I imagine Maybe exactly breezy. Yeah. hot, dry, breezy. And it, particularly, um, I think another thing to be a little bit even more specific, having a really like compressed spring, Um, So going from a cold winter to a hot summer um, Uh, in like a relatively short period of time, I think is really helpful. Um, So because springtime is, you know, kind of that perfect, it's humid as uh, in California, at least as the winter rains, hopefully in years that we have it, are kind (laughs) of like... (laughs) The, the ground and the, you know, the, the environment's drying out and it's warming up at the same time. So you get this kind of warm, humid environment in California in the spring. But, um, you know, mildew over, what is it, 90-ish degrees? This is something I may have to look up to pinpoint the exact temperature, but um, starts to not be able to thrive and grow. So 
once yeah. you kind of hit that 90 degree mark, um, and again, depending on your humidity, you, you don't have the mildew pressure you normally would. And plants are particularly susceptible. I mean, vines are perennial woody plants. So they, um, they have their carbohydrate stores in their wood. And then in the spring, they push really rapid growth um, from their buds. And all of that rapid kind of tender, light green, those light green shoots are much more susceptible to mildew because they're and, in, in their growth uh, phase. Yeah. And I, and uh, I mean, from what I know, the, the spores actually overwinter in the, the bark and trunk on the trunk and spurs of the vines as well. So it's sort of like it provides a habitat for the mildew as well as the perfect food for the mildew in the spring. Exactly. And not to say that those cold winters will necessarily uh, eliminate powdery mildew, but it will help. Um, right. You know, there nothing will be active during the winter. So if you have kind of a right. mi- more mild winter, then you might actually have powdery mildew growth kind of in that woody tissue. So yeah, having kind of this compressed spring period, cold winter to pretty hot summer um, relatively quickly. And then, like you said, the ventilation kind of wind airflow is really, those are all the things that I was looking for um, to be naturally occurring. And I feel like the Ukiah, greater Ukiah area um, of Mm. slightly more inland Mendocino really ticked a lot of those boxes. Um, So, so that was kind of the first thing is like, where, where in California do I want to work with because it's going to be easier to farm with minimal inputs. Um, And I, you know, definitely farmed in a few other locations or purchased fruit from a few other locations. And and there are other places too, like Contra Costa County has very little mildew pressure, um, generally speaking. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a few other areas, certain areas in the foothills for sure. I think the LA basin may be like 10 months out of the year, the perfect conditions for powdery mildew. (laughs) So it's just like, you can't, I mean, it's just an unending battle. Like right now it's 73 degrees and overcast outside right now in January. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it's, it's growing, you know, it's doing, it's doing, it never goes dormant. And then up in the high desert, um, it's, you know, we have extremely low humidity and breezy hot temperatures. The problem there is uh, water availability. Yeah. So it's like the place where it might be ideal conditions in some degrees doesn't necessarily make it conducive for growing the, the vines in an ecological way. Do you find that as well? I mean, you, you're, it looks like, I mean, Ukiah, I think you could get away with it. And there's probably like dry farm vineyards that are pre-prohibition vineyards up there, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. So we do actually work with uh, mostly dry farmed vineyards and you know, there are so many other factors. So that is, that is there, there's always, you know, the positive and negative to choosing a place. Um, Ukiah, we generally get enough winter rainfall that um, once the vines are established, we can dry farm them and we do. So I, you know, there are some, there's not a ton of pre-prohibition anymore, but there's a lot of post-World War II planting. So vines that were planted in the, you know, late 1940s which is pretty, pretty cool. And those have managed to do pretty well in drought years like last year. 
um, compared to the other vineyards that are not dry farmed, but water was so scarce in Mendocino County that all ag water was cut off. So um, those, those were, you know, those vineyards went through a pretty, pretty deep shock, but I think, yeah. So understanding, okay, what are, what are the trade-offs in the area that you're in? And being in Mendocino County, it's like, well, yeah, water's a problem and also it's hot. So, right. I mean, elegance in, in the right. wines that you make is is really kind of a tricky, yeah, <laughs> yeah, tricky, tricky uh, needle to thread. And so you well, almost especially... have to work with Italian varietals or things that really uh, maintain acidity. So that was kind of yeah. the whole thought process there. And when you said the word elegance, I guess my question for you is, do you equate um, the retention of acidity with elegance, is that interchangeable? Is there more to the word elegance than just acidity retention? Um, I, I think acidity is kind of the driving force. So yeah, yeah. I mean, to, okay. to decode that phrase, probably yes, acidity is kind of one of the number one things I'm looking at, but it's, it, that kind of is a, can be an indication of, of overall balance. So not just acidity, yeah. but yeah, what are the flavors how ripe is the grape and what's the sugar content and, you know, acidity and tannin and all of that. How are those all coinciding during the ripening and and harvest season? Yeah. And I mean, this is something I've been saying for a long time too, which is just, I I feel like given California's climate, we're, we're definitely for elegance. I mean, if we want big fruity, you know, extraction, maybe French grapes are great, but Italian varieties seem to be like, we're, we're even hotter than Italy in a lot of ways. And we're, you know, so it's, we're bringing out in a lot of ways, some of the, the fruitier characteristics of these, what would come across as rustic when you're in Italy, you come here and you get a lot more, I mean, you retain the acid, but then you get a nice balanced fruit profile as well. I don't know. Is that something that you've found I should be asking that yeah (laughs) yeah no 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 I totally agree with you there I think you know generalizing California but we have we have fruit fruit characteristics like in gobs (laughs) we have so much (laughs) so much fruit uh, uh, in our grapes so so many fruity characteristics that kind of understanding we're just fruity here we're just super fruity (laughs) super you know super bubbly (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah take you know if we're gonna import grapes from other places which we mostly do um right besides besides a few folks working with hybrids we uh or or native grapes um yeah i think looking at like how do these grapes perform in their environment and then if they are perhaps like you said rustic more savory in their home turf bringing them to california you you can hopefully retain some of those notes but you're going to get a lot of fruit on top of it i found now yeah and it tends to be a, a, a vigorous grower with big clusters if as i understand sort of yeah which yeah. helps with that the botrytis and the mildew in the clusters because the clusters are kind of big and loose right Exactly. And that was another thing that drew me to the grape besides the flavor. I mean, and the acidity, the, you know, the ability to maintain really nice acidity and hot climates, it was that loose cluster. Um, so trying to not spray as much. And, and I don't right. think it's particularly susceptible to mildew. I don't think it's like, oh my gosh, this grape never gets mildew. Um, but it, it's not like 
there are certain grapes that are notorious, like Carignan. It just, if it's planted in an area that gets mildew, you it, will have, get mildew. it will get mildew. <laughs> it is one of those like kind of, that's, it's, it's, it's weak um, when it comes to mildew resistance, but Got it. I found that Neridavala seems to have like a, I, I feel like medium to high. Again, it's hard because no, all the areas that I work with it are pretty low pressure. Okay. Um, but, but so like no. having, yeah, and, you know, kind of a thicker skin and a looser cluster and all those things also attracted me to the grape. Yeah, no, I've heard that as well. I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, so let's, you know, as, as a way to sort of transition to, um, how to make natural wine, so mm-hmm. to speak, yeah. <laughs> um, what numbers are you getting at harvest? Cause you're talking about acid. So can we put that in, in an actual you know, let's talk pH and, and at brick at certain bricks. And what, what are you seeing? Yeah, perfect. Riccarelli Ranch, Naradavala, which is our probably our most acidic site, um, uh-huh. has a 3.4 pH. This is after fermentation. So it might might have Whoa. Been, been lower than after, that. After mallow, too. Yeah, after mallow. <laughs> so yeah. low. So low. <laughs> and that is a, a 12.3 uh, percent alcohol. Oh. Okay, so that's a pretty reasonable, like around 20 bricks, something like that, 21. Um, that 12.3, that's usually around 23 bricks, actually. So oh, really? The conversion oh. isn't super, and it's a dry wine. The conversion, for some reason, isn't super um, yeah, that, high yeah. in that vineyard. Huh. So, okay. Yeah. And then, um, let's see, other that's... things. Acidity, uh, titratable acidity is 6.8 grams per liter. So pretty high there. Too. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's in the zone. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is that the is that would that have all would that have gone into what I tasted recently? Yeah, that would have been primarily what you what you tasted, and that's yeah. the Briccarelli, the Briccarelli, uh, the risotto that we make is a hundred percent Briccarelli because that is again probably the most acidic site, and I just think it uh, okay. makes the best risotto. So. Yeah, I I mean. Well, I thought both of those were extremely balanced. The numbers, um, yeah, that's that, that surprises me that, I mean, the impression wasn't that acidic. Yeah. From, yeah, it needs like to it age was, a little it, bit. But once it gets over that aging hump and then goes through malactic, I find that, I mean, I remember the first year I picked it in 2015. The uh-huh. first year we started working with Briccarelli, I thought, it's why I made a risotto, actually, because I tasted the grape and I was like, man, with tannin and this sort of, a screaming acidity because it tastes acidic when it comes into the winery it's like i'm gonna have to age this for at least five years before release and it was more like two and then oh wow as a rosé uh sorry as a red i could as a red okay yeah two two years um in barrel and then like another year in bottle so not not aged but not the five years i thought it was going to need in barrel in order to open up so i was a little bit surprised by the red about how kind of it it relaxed a little more quickly than I thought it would. And, but yeah, I made the risotto because I was like, I can't have all of this age for five years and have no wine to sell. So let's split it in half and make risotto out of some of it. <laughs> and so is that the 2019? Um, or, or which one are you looking at? Oh, the, the numbers that I just gave you? Or, yeah. Yeah, that's the 2021. So you haven't had it yet. I would have to look okay. up. 2019 numbers but i'm um, okay just similar yeah Yeah. nice that's amazing um Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it and the 19 you aged uh, that long as well 
Yeah, the 19 was aged about that. It might have gone okay. into bash. It might have gone into bottle at 18 months, 24. Yeah. I, well, it looks like you have, I mean, you have very good. Um, one thing I, I wanted to compliment you on is the, the very good technical transparency and, you know, everything that you do with a wine is listed on that wine sheet, on that wine page on your website. So some of it looks like it's there. Yeah. <laughs> and and that to... would be the, yeah, that would be definitely the source of truth rather than my brain, <laughs> because it's funny. You think you're going to like that. All the wines are so important and you're so involved with them when you're making yes. them. And then as the years blend together, <laughs> you it's, forget. It's because what you also you. drink them. So yeah. that helps erase <laughs> that. Totally. <memory>. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I saw you put your ingredient labeling on your wine, which I think is very cool. And it's something um, I think I would, we would love to do at some point. It's more of just getting, um, you know, the print, the time it takes to print the labels and then finishing, yeah. finishing the blends as those labels are in the printer. And so it, it does be, become a little bit, um, more difficult yes. for us yeah, to do it, that. Yeah, it is hard. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're trying to write, I mean, you can't really add anything. Like once you've printed the label, you're sort of like, well, <laughs> it is what it is at this point. Um. If the, if you need a little something else, um, then you're in trouble. And yeah, it, yeah. You don't want to reprint exactly just because something came up at the last minute on yeah. bottling day or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and most that, of our wines, true. most of our uh, wines are blends. So you know, even if it's 100% Nerdabla and you know, 75% is from Briccarelli Ranch, we have a few other vineyards we work with that may end up making it in the blend for that last 25%, and so. For us, it's just easier to stick with with the technical sheets, but definitely yeah. encourage people to look at them because um, winemaking is cool. And I'm, you know, I'm we're always trying to kind of do less to showcase the the fruit and the site even more. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of where we are right now with that. That's yeah, no, that's I, th- I think it's really admirable, and I wish more people were transparent that way. Um, and and look, I mean, we we list ingredients now and that's a big thing that we tout but you're right like all it's going to take is one like oh we've got to reprint you know five thousand labels and we'll be like we're not doing that again (laughs) like um no thank you yeah or when we were small i mean we very rarely um do this but we filtered one or two lots in the time that we've you know human wine wines has existed and so you know it's really if you put yeah, it's really fun fine, to say like, filter. oh, we don't, we don't do anything. Um, but then when you, when you do tell people what you, you know, if that's what you're sticking to is transparency, you know, I think it's been really great for us because it has, we work also with distributors and sales reps and everybody's on, on board with um, the natural wine philosophy. So when something right. deviates from that, um, a particular wine it sparks a lot of conversation and I think it's, um, it's been really great for us. You know? uh, well, that's a really good, um, I, I mean, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, actually it, mm-hmm. when you say that, when you yeah. say something deviates and you've had to have conversations about that, wh- how has that gone? What are some examples of that? I'm really curious. Yeah, I think filtration was the main one. So, you know, okay. we try to work with, you know, I, I kind of can't emphasize enough how important the, the grape and the site and the farming practices are. So you have, you know, wine, grapes that come into the vineyard that um, are 
suitable for making natural wine. So you have to, I think having a certain pH, there are always outliers. We have a wine that's a white wine that's close to pH four that we're bottling that's been aging and it tastes delicious and it isn't funky and it's not microbial and it seems stable. So of course there are exceptions to the rules, but in general, like having a lower pH, higher acidity, using some tannin um, extraction to your advantage in order to help naturally protect the wine without preservatives. Like all of those things are important natural winemaking tenants. But, um, you know, occasionally we have a vineyard. I don't know. I've noticed this even a little bit more since crazy weather patterns have happened. But you know, vineyard that's a little stressed out during the growing season, and maybe the pH is higher than it normally has been. And um, the options, and it doesn't seem like it's going to be as stable in the bottle, or we want to blend it with other lots that do seem stable. But this wine, we don't want to increase, you know, if it if it does seem like it has, you know, a lot of lactic acid bacteria in the during the fermentation, for instance, uh, introducing it to those other lots might just kind of (laughs) spread this microbial instability. (laughs) So, um, you know, the options would be if you're using sulfur to um, try to increase your microbial stability by killing the microbes um, in your wine, then at a higher pH, you have to add a lot of sulfur to do that. Right. So for us, it's like, well, you know, we... We're a business that's not necessarily going to, and the wine tastes good right now, but to see where it's going, we're not going to risk having, you know, a bunch of mousy wine on the market. It's just not, not my, not what I want to do. And, you know, everyone has their own path when they're, uh, when they're confronted with these decisions, but, um, for us filtering the wine, um, especially like cross flow filtering, which is through, um, it's kind of a different type of filtration. That's it, the, the wine flows, um, uh, parallel to the membrane and the membrane's made out of uh, ceramic, um, versus other sorts of filtration that's throwing, that's flowing perpendicular to the filtration membrane and really pushes the wine through and is a little bit more, I'd say, less gentle on the wine than cross flow filtration. Um, right. We have decided in those circumstances when we have a higher pH, because we're not going to add acidity to our wine, um, that filtering them is the best, the best thing for us to do. And so while I guess it could remove terroir a bit, which I think is the concern with mm-hmm. uh, why that's kind of written into the unwritten natural winemaking rules. Um, right. I, still just think it's the best thing for that wine for that lot and that that point in time so yeah, yeah it's kind of a trade-off between um high sulfur use or adding acidity um to the fermentation which i would also get into the fact that i don't think that that's that terrible even <laughs> though we don't do it um <laughs> it's one of those things that it's like yeah i don't mind um removing the microbes like mechanically through filtration if that's if that's what needs right. to happen so the wine may feel a little less alive but it'll also be a little more stable and usually in those circumstances we try to blend it with wines that haven't been filtered so you still have um you know microbial population is just not uh, as you know it's not a bunch of lactic acid bacteria for instance so. right well so and and you can do 
what would be considered a sterile filtration with a crossflow? Um, it is not completely sterile, um, but so getting it a little bit more technical about filtration, there's something called absolute. Um, uh, so the, por- like the porosity. Point, yeah. Point so you're micron or whatever. So or... 0.45, exactly. 0.45 micron is considered um, a small enough porosity to remove both yeast, which are much larger than bacteria and bacteria. Um, and so 0.45 micron is considered sterile filtration, but only if it's an absolute filter. So, um, filters are, uh, they, the way they're classified, there's two different types. Uh, one's called nominal and one's called absolute. So absolute means that the largest pore size in that filter would be 0.45. So you're absolutely, I think of it as like, you're absolutely getting that (laughs) porosity throughout the entire filter, no matter what nominal is more of an average. So like you might have just because the nature of filters, a lot of them are made of cellulose or ceramic or things that are um, not 100% homogenous in terms of how big their porosity is. So you would be getting an average uh, porosity of 0.45 micron. I actually think cross flow is a little bit smaller than 0.4. You can get a little bit smaller than 0.45, but it's a nominal filter. It's so it's an average. So you might have you might have some bacteria sneaking through, right. um, but that's okay. <laughs> the idea isn't to, you know, necessarily totally sterilize the wine. Um, right. Again, we try to blend blend things. If for some reason a vineyard is out of balance or stressed out during the growing season, and the grape chemistry and therefore the wine chemistry um, is off in the cellar, then we try to definitely blend, <laughs> blend for, I guess, um, better numbers, secondary to blending for taste. I mean, taste is obviously what we blend for the most. Um, right. but it is, but it, those two things usually tend to coincide where you're like, Oh, this tastes good because it's also in balance. Um, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. No, mm. I, yeah. <laughs> um, so just to, Go back. So to make a natural wine mm-hmm. um, successfully, it as you said, you're starting. I'm sure you'd say with the farming of the vineyard, and then it's it's the right vine grown in the right place, picked at the right time to give you grapes that are whole and healthy and um, and in balance in a way that allows f- you to do very little basically and still have the wine turn out. Totally. Um, yeah. So it's really. Really, I mean, that's what's I think one of the beautiful things about natural wine is it really forces you to focus on the farming first because you can't just take any grape and hope to have success. You might get lucky, but you know, without that real attention and understanding to what's going on in the vineyard and how the grapes are responding and to to everything, that sort of intuition that comes from seeing multiple vintages, you, you're rolling the dice. Um, it seems like, and then you know, hopefully you've learned at a certain point by observing and, and, you know, farming well to Mm -hmm. know when the grapes and respond to the grapes and, and to take the, the grapes off at the right time. And, and then, okay, so now we're in the vineyard. I mean, maybe it's easy to, to talk about a specific wine 
uh, mm-hmm. for you? Is that do you have do you have one that you'd like to just sort of go through the process of what's involved and how you how you manage a, a yeah. something from the vineyard to the bottle? Yeah, um, I'll talk about making the Venturi Vineyard carry on because I think that that's um, you know it's a wine we've been making I've been making since 2014. It's always the same plot, um, same grapes, and all of them you know get fermented together. It's it's a little probably less complicated than some of our co-ferments or our blends. So um, that vineyard um, was planted in the late 1940s. So the vines are a little over 70 years old. And I mention that only because I feel like the chemistry uh, coming off of that vineyard, the, the grapes are really well balanced. So, um, and Carignan itself, um, unlike Zinfandel, for instance, Carignan has a little bit of a wider picking window, which means that it ripens a little more slowly. So mm. I feel like I have time to, to, to check on it a little bit more to, um, really pick at a point in time when I feel like there's a lot of fruit character, but the tannin and the tannins aren't green. Um, they've kind of matured and that they're, the acidity is like in a really nice place and the sugar is not super high. So that's nice um, for me picking this plot in particular. <laughs> the old vine yeah. adds to that. And then the fact that it's Carignan um, really is helpful with choosing a picking um, date. And so we, um, Larry's crew comes in um, and hand harvests everything. Um, this, you know, everything we work with is hand harvested. Um, but particularly with these like dry farmed head trained vines, you have to hand harvest. <laughs> There's no yeah. other options because <laughs> yeah. they're like little trees. And, um, <laughs> right. so, and, and I think the fact that they are kind of in that little, they look like little trees means that the fruit is really spread out and it's well ventilated, even though Carignan's kind of this, um, typically known to have mildew, um, it's in this dry climate and these they're almost like ornaments on a Christmas tree where there's a lot of space. <laughs> they're like equally spaced out and there's airflow and they're not hanging against um, like a, with a vertical trellis where the fruits hanging against the, 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 the shoots or the leaves. You don't, you just don't have that airflow. So, um, and I'll be on the trailer while they're harvesting. And um, as the crew comes and dumps their little, buckets I'll pick out leaves um, in particular and if there's any sort of if there's any rot I mean I haven't seen rot in California for so many years it's just so dry <laughs> here now <laughs> but if there's any rot or any mildew um, or ra- raisins I'll pull those out um, so you're just doing that in in the picking buckets you're just out yeah. in the field doing like a field sort you don't exactly. have a sorting table yeah. or, or do you bring it in and then do a second sort we do have a sorting table at the winery, um, but we don't use it very often because okay. right. we don't need to, but, but we <laughs> right. would. And that's, I guess, like, you know, we talked, to, we talked about filtration, which is kind of like the last end resort, but you're doing all these things first to prevent having to right. get there, which is, right. you know, growing things well and, and making sure. So basically we're just looking at, does the grape taste good? Is it in balance? Um, all the components that you want. And then also is the skin intact and is it healthy or is it, so, you know, cause the skin is really important that there's like a waxy bloom on the grape um, that mm. contains all of the yeast and bacteria that are um, necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Necessary. I mean, what ferments yeah. your wine is, is yeast from, from 
the vineyard at first and then yeast in your cellar. So we'll get nice. to that point, but, but having, yeah, that intact, healthy, waxy bloom, that's going to kick off your fermentation. Um, Can I ask you, yeah. um, what, what numbers for the Carignan are you looking for? What's the range that you're like, okay, it's about time to pick or it is time to pick. Yeah. I mean, I mean about I 20, mean, you... 22.5 bricks is great. So somewhere in there, um, uh-huh. but I really, I do a lot of tasting. I don't worry as much about whether the, you know, a lot of, um, grower or sorry, a lot of, uh, winemakers or growers will look and try to, um, crunch the seeds and see if the seeds are, uh, dry yeah, and brittle. Yeah. I don't yeah. worry about that. I don't think that that's as much of an indicator, at least for me, or I don't look at whether the stems are woody. Cause that's a, more of a varietal thing. I feel like, right. um, yeah. but I do taste it. And I really like, you know, as I'm tasting the grapes really like kind of, uh, uh, almost grind the the um, the uh, skins in my teeth yeah. and really try yeah. to taste them. And if I get any of that, like if you've all tasted like unripe banana skin or like try to bite into a banana <laughs> to to peel it and it's not quite ripe, that oh, intense yeah, yeah, yeah. green tannin, that's yeah, yeah. Then we're we're not gonna pick yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, are you then, looking at pH at that point? Uh, yeah. I mean, or do you? Yeah, yeah, okay, so you look yeah, at both so, pH and grits. Yeah, okay. when we first started, I didn't have a pH meter because, again, really scrappy um, yeah, to begin yeah, with, no, but right. it's something we invested in. It's a couple hundred bucks, a handheld one right. that we can bring into the field. And so we'll t- we'll test pH and we'll test uh, bricks, so measure of okay, great, more yeah. or less measure of sugar. Those are the two things we do. We don't test anything else when we're before we pick, but we just taste a lot. So Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, all good. So we're, yeah, we're, we're, hand, we're sorting out anything in the, in the field that we don't want and then um, drive the grapes back to the winery. And is there a time? I mean, are you, is this midday at this point? This is are usually you... early morning and I, early morning. Yeah. yeah so um, are you doing we, night picking? We are not doing night picking. Um, okay. So I, you know, the, the, the coldest time of the day is actually uh, right before sunrise so night picks actually your fruit can be a little bit warmer but mostly it's just really hard with these older head trained vineyards to do night picks because fruits missed it's all there's not like one fruit zone on the vine again it's kind of like a christmas tree where you're like (laughs) (laughs) looking all up and down so it's good to have light for that and so yeah we pick first thing you know we get there right before sunrise um so I'm usually leaving my house around 4.30, driving up the hour to get to the vineyard and then start the pick and then um, driving things back. And the fruit's really pretty cold at this point. So I've had I've had picks that have been delayed for, you know, one logistical reason or another. And the fruit has come in much warmer. Yeah. And I've actually, I know it's not, you know, industry standard, but I've actually really liked those fermentations. They kick off yeah. right away, and yeah. So for native fermentations, it's I actually like things to be a little bit warmer. But you know, the the crew is ready, and they want to pick when it's cool out, and I totally get that. So so that's what we do. Yeah. Um, and then we come back, and I make this wine 100% whole cluster, so we don't put it through a distemmer at all. Um, what we oh. generally do is we um, foot tread a few of the bins, so maybe. I don't know, 10%, I guess, of the total. Okay. Um, 
and uh, dump that into the bottom of the fermenter. So it's skins and stems and juice um, just to kind of get the, the fermentation a little bit started, prime it a uh -huh. little bit. And then we put a bunch of all the rest whole cluster on the top. Okay. And I don't do uh, carbonic maceration for this. So we don't seal the tank. Um, I usually do um, put a little bit of either um, carbon dioxide gas just in the tank, which is heavier than air. So it'll stay in the tank or, uh -huh. um, or a little dry ice just to keep it a little bit fresh. Um, right and not encourage um, vinegar production. But, right. and then we'll take, you know, usually at this point there's something that's already fermenting in the winery. So whatever is active, whether it's red, white, rosé from another lot, I'll take a couple buckets from that. Um, okay. That's kind of at this like peak fermentation and um, dump those buckets into the fermenter. And, and to, to that point that you yeah. just made, I think that the warm, the warmth um, can, is another maybe good reason if you're doing a natural style to which will help prevent the the VA the the vinegar mm -hmm. production right as well because mm -hmm. you get once you get the primary kicked off quickly it will mm -hmm. sort of take over some of that other stuff is that correct yeah or? yeah that's true um so yeah I mean so it's either protected with a blanket I mean it's also protected with the natural blanket of CO two at that point because you you've started primary and the yeast are producing the co2 yeah exactly so it's just in that like first day or two where things you know you want to encourage um yeah you want to discourage uh vinegar production so and uh, yeah that would be more kind of discouraging some of the bacterial action that could happen um and encouraging right. the yeast so and then we'll foot tread it at the top of the fermenter um every night and every morning until the fermentation kicks off. And so you still have a whole lot of, a lot of whole cluster um, throughout the fermentation. And we kind of like to foot tread it and slowly break up the grapes um, in order to more slowly release the sugars. So for this particular wine, we want the fermentation kind of slow, slow and low, like more of a simmer, <laughs> um, than anything too eruptive. And we do do more fermentations that are, I guess, warmer and quicker and more active, um, for different grapes. But for this one, I just really like kind of, um, a lighter hand. It, it makes a lighter bodied wine and more aromatic because the fermentation is cooler. Um, right. the yeast don't build as much heat because, um, the yeast population, instead of it kind of having a really sharp peak and then, uh, right. you know, come down the other side of fermentation slowly, this fermentation takes usually about three to three and a half weeks, whereas okay. our other More native fermentations. Yeah, exactly. Rather than exponential. Totally. Um, well, how big is the fermenter that you use for this? Then? It sounds like a pretty big one. Yeah, this one's either... So this um, plot usually comes in around four tons. So that's usually the size of the fermenter, um, a little, an open top oh, okay. fermenter, a little bit bigger than that. Um, yeah, it's not, it's oh. not huge, um, but not, not small. Right. I, I tend to like to ferment things unless you have temperature control on your tank, some sort of like glycol. I like, right. I think four tons is kind of a great maximum Two, I love one ton, one to four ton fermentations. I feel like are great in terms of Got like their, their heat, their ability to like, not overheat, but have enough heat um, right. from the fermentation themselves. So, yeah, and and you're getting 
into the 410 fermenter and doing additional stomping? Yeah, yeah, we'll get in. Do you have to wear top. a gas mask or anything? No, usually. So we try to match it so that the grapes are, you know, your head is well above the top of the okay. fermenter. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's to the point where like at most you would be waist, like the waist, your waist height would be where the top of the fermenter Got is. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And Thanks. then once it gets to, there's still a lot of CO2. Um, yeah. Once it gets so I, I say this more as like a public service announcement totally. for anybody listening yes. out there. Like, don't get into a big fermenter of fermenting grapes and stuff. So them. so important. <laughs> never, never do that. Yes, never get into a fermenter where your, uh, you know, where your head is not well above the top of it. And also be careful. So we sit, like I sit on the edge of the fermenter, and I kind of test how you know thick yeah. the grapes are because once you. Once fermentation becomes active, you know, all of the grapes will float to the top and you'll have liquid below. And if you break through that cap with your body weight, you'll fall to the bottom of the fermenter. So don't do that either. (laughs) Very, very bad. It's actually, yeah, one of the, definitely one of the most dangerous parts of winemaking is understanding carbon dioxide and how much is produced and how quickly and that it sinks, that it sinks. So it's, you know, it'll sink to the bottom of anything. Um, so when you're digging, so, you know, once the fermentation's done, um, well, partway through fermentation, we'll do what's called a delistage, um, where we move all of the liquid from the fermentation, we'll drain it off into put it into another tank, and then pump it uh, all back over the top. So it's kind of a way to like, break up some of the juice channels that happen in the wine and fill yeah. out a little bit of the mid palate. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, fermentations are almost, we will do some pump overs too. So there's like, obviously I don't have like an exact recipe for this wine. It's a lot more (laughs) feeling. I mean, this is generally how we do it, but feeling out how things, how things are. Well, well, maybe that's a good question then. What, what guides some of those decisions? Is it, is it, I'm trying something new this year or is it the wine is tasting and smelling this way so i think it needs a little zhuzh in this yeah, direction totally the zhuzh yeah a little <laughs> okay. bit of like we you know i taste tim and i will taste and smell every fermentation every day um and you can get a lot of information just from smelling it um yeah. but also from those early foot treadings um and kind of those early body punch downs um that you're doing safely, um, you will, <laughs> you'll get a lot of information about like just temperature and activity. Cause you'll, yeah. feet, your, your feet will go in and out of cold pockets and warm pockets. And so you're like, oh, okay, yeah. this is not as it's not a like super active homogenous fermentation yet. It's still kind of kicking off in certain areas and, um, tasting the grapes on top and tasting the whole clusters that are a little bit, um, underneath the top of the surface, you know, we'll, pull one of those out with like a plastic rake or something, um, food grade rake. And we'll, we'll taste those clusters and see if there's any carbonic activity down below. So all of these things just kind of go into your brain. And then with, I guess, experience, um, you just kind of learn how to respond to them and think, okay, you know what, let's do a, let's do a long pump over on this today. The yeast it's earlier on in the fermentation. It seems like the yeast could use a little more oxygen to strengthen their cell wall and um, make more yeast. And as the fermentation gets warmer and more alcoholic, you know, having a strong yeast species with that strong cell wall is important. So 
we'll pump it over for longer and we'll get more air in it in the beginning. And there are some kind of general rules to ferment, to fermenting, but then again, you'll be like, Oh, this is starting to smell a little bit more like ethyl acetate. Um, You know, we want to go low and slow, but maybe it's a little too cold and let's warm up the fermenter. We have these like basically like big, they look like big Bunsen burners that we'll put (laughs) under the tank and move around. It's very, very high tech. Um, (laughs) You're out there with a blowtorch. Totally. uh, Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Just warm it at the bottom of the tank and then we'll pump it over. And that usually even raising the temperature of the fermentation a degree or something. You don't want to overshoot it because the yeast will, again, keep, you know, the activity of the yeast will, will warm the fermentation itself. But so those sort of things, you know, and then we'll maybe pump it over and, and be like, okay, this seems to be a little bit warmer and that ethyl acetate, it won't favor, you know, the yeast or bacteria that are making that ethyl acetate and more saccharomyces will take over. So and- kind of, yeah, understanding that microbial ecosystem is is important too and i i'm gonna just put this out there as a a little aside i i think you said between one and four tons is a good size for not being too big but i think it's also a good size for not being too small because you 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 that those those bacteria that cause us ethyl acetate are oxygen um feeding or they need oxygen and and if i'm you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I this is from years mm-hmm. of being a home winemaker. It is very difficult to make natural wine at home because you expose, you're using, you're working in smaller quantities. So you therefore have the wine exposed to that much more oxygen per square inch, uh, be, just with a smaller quantity using smaller vessels, more exposure to oxygen. And there's so many ways it can go wrong or, mm-hmm. you know, a fermentation doesn't kick off quickly enough. And then something, you also have a smaller quantity. So any anything that gets into it can take over that whole quantity much more quickly than it could take over in a, a larger volume. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I Please add your own to that as well. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think oxygen exposure can definitely uh, be a factor in smaller fermentations. But for me, the main thing that is problematic with small fermentations is not having enough heat. So Uh, like the fermentation itself, because it's just, it's, I guess, got more surface area and it it doesn't have the thermal mass that a larger fermentation would. So it just doesn't have the mass itself to, um, so what happens is it'll cool down a lot more quickly. (laughs) Um, it's, and it's something that, um, you know, you will get a gener heat generated from, the activity of yeast converting sugar to alcohol. And that will in fact, you know, really encourage more yeast because that that they do like, you know, yeast thrive best at um, around, they propagate the fastest at around a hundred degrees, but Fahrenheit, but you would, you don't want your fermentation to be that hot because it would overheat and cook. Um, So but the problem is with these smaller fermentations is it's just really hard to get that the the heat needed to have mm. healthy yeast production and to not have some of these other non-saccharomyces yeast and and bacteria kind of take over. So right, yeah. I mean, I've had I've heard. I think when I was making wine in my uh, backyard at Davis, I'd use like a fish tank heater sometime. We can like oh, submerge it in the liquid. Um, 
Interesting. And to kind of keep it a little bit warmer or like electric blankets around your, your vessel or whatever, (laughs) or put it in a warm spot. I mean, we, we, again, are pretty low tech at the winery. We don't, um, yeah, move it outside most times in the fall and California. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Put it out in the sun every day. So that's what we do with our, a lot of our fermentations. Uh, four tons is a little, we can't move those tanks, but (laughs) the one ton fermenters that are in, you know, the little, the kind of like a, bigger picking bin type thing those yeah we definitely keep out in the sun which is nice okay. yeah. so at this point uh and you haven't added any sulfur when you've brought the grapes in and put them in the fermenter no no yeah so that's so, what all the sorting was about and the you right know, making right. sure the skins are healthy because i really like early on in fermentation um non-saccharomyces cerevisiae species will be the ones that that are present. And those are mostly kind of coming in from the vineyard. And now, those, want, oh, what were you saying? No, no, I was no, just no, going to no. say those, those provide some of those kind of like more wild, what I think of as interesting flavors. And there's so many different species that it's, they're all kind of contributing their voice, I think. And then yeah. after, you know, a couple percent of alcohols produced, all of those yeast and bacteria usually die off or the majority of them do. And Saccharomyces cerevisiae take over. Um, and that's more usually present in the cellar. It's just kind of in the air, especially midway through harvest where there's tons right. <laughs> just everywhere. Yeah, right. So yeah, you'll yeah. notice like the first batch you bring in takes a week to start and the 10th batch you bring in is fermenting the next day. Basically, totally, totally. After bringing it in. Yeah. Um, well, and that goes to what you, yeah, you, I mean, you, you mentioned that before that it's like this idea of reflecting vineyard terroir through yeast is maybe an illusion because the ambient yeast, wherever they're fermenting is at some point going to be dominant or a a dominant voice in the wine fermentation aspect. Yeah, Um, they will dominate, they'll dominate that, that sugar conversion. But I do think those really early, that couple of degrees alcohol in the beginning that's produced and all the flavor compounds that are being produced at that time have, have a pretty big impact, even though they're not, predominant throughout the fermentation i do see them as a very important part of yeah of fermentation yeah. and we will you know we do notice that feel like certain certain vineyards produce certain kind of fermentation kinetics so i do think those um which is probably a combination of both the vineyard you know microbes the the vineyard terroir i guess microbial terroir and what the soil is giving in terms of nutrients to the grape that the yeast are then can Yeah, I, I know a winemaker who actually monitors the fermentation and lets native yeast flora happen until basically like a 2% uh, alcohol, whatever, drop in bricks or whatever it is, increase in alcohol, and then, uh, then inoculates because they're like, well, at that point, you know, I'm just going <laughs> to, I've already gotten all that I'm going to get from the native mm-hmm. population. Yeah. I don't know. It's just one yeah, philosophy, but totally. it's one of my first, oh. one of my first jobs in California, we did that, um, where it was native fermentation until I think like when it was five bricks or something, they would inoculate with a, with a stronger yeast that could ferment it to a higher alcohol. Cause that was their style was, it was like a little bit richer and they just were kind of wanted it as an insurance policy to not have a stuck fermentation, yeah. but our, yeah, my... our alcohols on our wines are moderate enough. We don't right. really have we've had you know an occasional stuck fermentation um in one barrel every couple of years so that's one of those fears that i'm like not 
I don't feel like is, I feel like is just a fear. It's just the boogeyman. Yeah. It's not native fermentations right. can, can be totally effective. I, I'm actually really excited for our first stuck fermentation um, because I now have a lot of, you know, people that, are asking for sweet wine. So mm-hmm. I'm just like, well, if it happens, I, you know, no problem. I might have to filter, but that's all good. You know, totally. there will yeah. be a happy audience for that. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the cases where we did filter um, a portion of our Chenin Blanc that was like off dry. And that was when it finished. And I was like, great. Tastes delicious. Yep. <laughs> I'll filter it. I've also not filtered. I mean, the first Naradavla risotto I made, I know it had like three grams of sugar left when oh. it was done fermenting oh. and we put it in a bottle. And knowing that it was, if it did ferment dry in bottle, it would be slightly spritzy, which I think would, would have been delicious with that wine. Yeah. Um, but I would be more concerned about like other bugs rather than Saccharomyces finishing the firm that, you know, eating that sugar. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of you're, you are playing a little Russian roulette there. So yeah, we did it um, and I loved the way it turned out, but yeah, definitely I mean, that's, on I, large, I, that's I, large cuvées. I don't think I would have been as bold. That's how I turned a batch of, uh, off dry wine into vinegar, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, so okay, so you are um, we're we're at the point where fermentation is happening. You've mm-hmm. done you've you've sort of felt your way through it, seeing what the fermentation needs, giving what it needs, and and now you're dry. Yeah. I, I, I assume you wait till you're dry before pressing. Depends on the wine. With this wine, okay. we do um, okay. because it's kind of this low and slow. It doesn't usually have this tannin extraction happening too quickly. So, and what we actually do with this wine, which is a bit unique is we, we let it go dry. Um, and then we actually, we, we put it in a certain open top fermenter that has one of those floating lids that you can, um, adjust the height and seal the tank at any height. Right. And then, yeah, once it goes dry, we'll seal the tank up and leave it for the remainder of whatever a month would be start to finish. So if the fermentation takes three weeks, it will be sealed up for about a week. Um, oh, just, on, on stems yeah. and skins and everything. On stems and skins and everything. And that's something that, you know, they do in in um, Northern Italy with Nebbiolo. And I think with certain mm-hmm. things that have, can have, Carignan um, has beautiful tannins, but it can have kind of rustic or harsher tannins. And there's actually um, studies show that Throughout fermentation, you'll get tannin extraction. Um, and then if you go ahead and leave your wine on stems and skins, or just skins, um, it doesn't have to be stems. Um, we have stems in there, but just skins, that what will happen is some of the tannin will rebind the skins. Um, so it actually helps soften tannin. So if you've kind of like oh. ever, if you've ever overshot the amount of tannin that you've extracted in a fermentation, if you actually just leave it for a little bit longer, it will start kind of, the tannin will build and then you'll get over the top of that peak and then it'll start to reabsorb. It will never go back to nothing. There still have tannin there, but it will soften and it actually helps stabilize color too. So. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so it sounds like you could go either way. Cause it said you, you started by saying it depends on the wine and you might press uh, while there's still a little sugar, a little fermentation happening, which mm-hmm. I 
I know is another tannin management technique, totally. right? Yeah. So you're getting it off skins earlier before mm-hmm. you get the harsh extraction. Yeah. And so, that's what so we you... do with actually the majority of our wines in the cellar is we, we taste for tannin and flavor gotcha. and then we press on that regardless of where the sugar is. So okay. things might still be sweet. Um, and, but the tannin feels like it's in a good place and that, that's the way we try not extract. Now, is there, do, do, can you, I mean, is, are there other things that you do for tannin management, um, whether it's in the vineyard or in the winery? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, depending how much you're opening up your canopy and how much, uh, like UV light is getting on your grape can affect your tannin, um, right. how it tastes. So. Um, the quality of it, not necessarily the quantity, but exactly. maybe the quantity too, but the yeah, quality. more, more the quality. And I haven't been able to like put a finger on what that actually means yet, but I did work. <laughs> <laughs> I worked with, and my, and my, at Davis, um, my research partner was from Argentina and had, we were working, we were doing kind of a terroir comparison of all these different Malbec wines and the really high altitude wines that had more UV light just had a different but certainly different color, but a different kind of tannin characteristic. And the only thing I can, it felt concentrated more, but not, not necessarily more dry, like more, I don't know how to explain it, to be honest. Is, okay. So I heard, tell me what you think about this, the, the candy coating shell of a M&M and mm-hmm. the way that it melts on your tongue. Mm-hmm. Does that, help in any way can you <laughs> just I, I i've heard this i've tried to use this it seems like it, it's applicable i mean i've tasted it where the tannins sort of are that you know there's like the first experience of it when you put it in your mouth is sort of smooth but then it quickly becomes rough but then it melts completely away by the end and i don't know if there's anywhere along that profile of that mm-hmm. yeah rather than becoming help. dry i mean i you know, we actually, my parents just dropped off a huge container of M&Ms, but I haven't <laughs> dug into it and I haven't had M&Ms for a while. So I feel like, <laughs> Damn I, it. <laughs> I know, but it's uh, I do feel like, yeah, there is something to do with what's the final impression of that tannin okay. in your mouth. And is it really dry or is it kind of, has it kind of gone through this journey where it does add some sort of dryness but then almost ends like in more of like a melted creaminess or something i mean there's all all, yeah yeah, and there's all sorts of weird things where like tannin sometimes it's like you'll drink a wine and you're like whoa all the tannin is in the front of my mouth like it's like right right up right up near my front teeth and sometimes you're like oh the tannin's drying out the back of my mouth and this is true for everyone tasting this wine at least the few people that i've been tasting with and it's like what is up with that i mean tannins are complicated (laughs) i don't know but yeah, there does seem to be a different quality when you have more light on your grapes. Got it. Um, okay. Well, another question I have for you. I, I, I mean, I, I should let you finish if there's any other tannin management techniques. No, I mean, the only other thing people can do and, you know, some, some traditional houses do is um, fine. So like, you know, egg white right. fining or things like that will definitely change your tannin profile and soften and things. And I assume but... you do not fine. No, we don't. Um, yeah, I don't either. Um, yeah. and yeah, I mean, it seems like there's so many other options, like maybe if you have to find, don't work with that kind of grape that you feel like you need to find. Yeah. Something. I mean, I aging know. things longer again, aging, all of these right. things like uh, trying to mitigate it all during f- fermentation and like, right. you know, and vineyard practices is really the way we do it. If for some reason right. we miss the mark, we'll, we'll probably end up 
blending that wine a little bit or aging it longer. So right. Kind of our and I, I, I was joking. I mean, I know there's a lot yeah. of other reasons to find for clarity and just stability if you're in a grocery store for, you know, yeah. if that's kind of, if that's your market, totally. it's a whole different game. Totally. Um, so my other question, did you want to talk at all about biogenic amines? I, I asked you that question about adding sulfur at crush and, and you had sent me some articles about those. I didn't know if you wanted to to say anything about that. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it does just seem like a new hot topic. Exactly, and, and an interesting study that really does shed some, I think, important light on our understanding, both from a health under you know a health mm-hmm. standpoint, but also just um, I don't know, maybe just sort of not being on such a high horse, maybe is the way to put it about yeah, natural wine. Totally. Yeah, I think you know. I was originally drawn to natural wine because I, I loved the way they tasted, the vibrancy, but I also thought that they really, I was like, oh, this is a great way to really showcase a sense of place. And I feel like right. they, they're, when, when done well, they're, they're very evocative of place. And I, and I love that. And that was what drew me to this method. I also like consumers, you know, once you've kind of been in the business for a while, and I guess you see how the sausage is made, you, you want people to know that there's, there's, there's different quality standards yes. out there um, <laughs> all across the board and it's not on the label and that's unfortunate and, yeah. you know, and it's not widely discussed, but yeah. you know, which is f- why, again, I, the transparency that you are modeling is I think I, wonderful and should be emulated. Yeah. But, but, but they get kind of the idea of like, what's a formulated wine versus what's a, what's a right. kind of crafted wine. All of these are important, but there is something that's happened and I've been guilty of this too. I'll, I'll admit, but like this, this idea that um, natural wines are healthier for you. I try right. not to go into that. It's more like, oh, I feel like you know, generally speaking, not a hundred percent of the time, but like natural wines feel like they jive with my body a little bit better um, in terms of my like the digestibility and the digestibility of the alcohol. And for whatever reasons, you know, that may be a natural wine. I don't know lower alcohol or less extraction or, but one of the things that's come up recently or lower sulfur, certainly. Um, one of the things that has come up has as kind of a counter argument to these native fermentations that don't have any sulfur added prior to fermentation kicking off is, um, this, uh, production of what's called biogenic amines. And these are found in lots of fermented foods. So certain cheeses, um, like cured uh, meats, cured meats, right. totally all the delicious things in my mind. <laughs> when I started reading about biogenic amines, it's like, well, I guess <laughs> I don't have too much of a problem with them because I love these things and I eat them. Right. And, <laughs> um, right. but it had but been, they, yeah, they could be a big cause for people who think they're getting sulfite headaches who are you know so many people think they're allergic to sulfites, but the reality may very well be that it, it they've had several wines with high levels of biogenic amines and and a lot of times those are in wines like red wines predominantly mm-hmm. um, yeah. go on I'll let yeah you no precisely yeah. i mean I, I know probably about as much about this as as you do but it's something that i do think is interesting because um you know these recent studies have said okay well as natural winemaking has become more predominant and we're doing all these these native fermentations that um may have higher levels of certain um, bacteria uh, metabolizing and creating these compounds, these biogenic amines, then the argument is with a small dose of sulfur, you could uh, eliminate these bacteria um, and you could favor 
more Saccharomyces cerevisiae does not produce these biogenomines, and you'd have lower lower amount in your finished wine. So while that I you know is, is true, the studies have shown that, but they didn't really take into account that much in the study that I read is uh, the effect of pH on these things. So right. you know. Yes, bacteria are more sensitive to sulfur dioxide. That's why that small amount of sulfur dioxide prior to primary fermentation can can knock back the bacteria, but not the native yeast as much. Right. Um, you know, if you're working with a low pH, high acid grape, that naturally just inhibits bacterial production. So like, again, this idea, we worked with some Pinot this year and the pH was higher than what I was used to. And I did notice, I was like, oh man, there's this kind of like charcuterie thing going on in the fermenter, which I actually wow. liked. But this is what led me to like looking up, I, I got it tested for, um, I got what was what's called the scorpion analysis done, which kind of uh, gives you yeah, an idea yeah. of how much, what, what your count of lactic acid bacteria is versus acetic acid bacteria versus various um, a few, a few like main categories of bacteria and yeast. Brett, right? Is, yeah. is that part of scorpion and, and yeah. pediococcus and all exactly, these things, right? exactly. So we had higher lactic acid bacteria in this fermentation, and it was giving this kind of charcuterie thing. And I thought, well, maybe this wine's going to have higher biogenic amines. We haven't gotten that tested yet, but um, it's something that's interesting to me. Where I was like, okay, you know. I think I have to watch grapes like Pinot and more of these kind of French cool climate grapes in California if I am going to try to make natural wine from them. These Italian grapes, they do great. They don't have these, <laughs> they don't have any sort of lactic acid bacteria um, problems. Right. But on the other side, the lactic acid bacteria are like considered probiotics. So it's kind of like, okay, well, what's the scorpion yeah, but... doesn't discern exactly what it lumps a bunch of species together so it's hard to right know. well the lactic acid bacteria is what's responsible for just like any home fermentation if you make sauerkraut like that's totally. that's that right yeah yeah your probiotics if you you know yeah if you get right. them through your foods or or buy them in the store that's lactic acid bacteria <laughs> so right <laughs> yeah so a lot to still kind of unpack but it's an interesting thing and i think I don't know. Maybe I'm making this up in my head, but I'm always like, oh, this kind of like philosophy, philosophical war that goes on in the wine world among those who like use sulfur and those who don't. Like, I think right. that those who use sulfur uh, prior to fermentation are like, see, ha, right. <laughs> there is <laughs> <Totally>. something. <laughs> but I don't know. I think it's all, there's all, we just know so little about wine. And, and yeah and fermentation and it's just really all exciting to to see um new bits of information come out okay so so i think we made it to the end of the the in tank period mm -hmm. and uh i i assume you press it and settle it and then or do you like off grosslies or do you how, do you do anything different than yeah. than that? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's 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 pretty accurate. We okay. When I first started making wine, and we didn't have as many vessels, I would just yeah. press it straight to barrel, and it would be okay. on gross leaves. But I do really like, um, or maybe no, we'd press it into like another open fermenter, and then immediately put it to barrel because I always really like the free run 
the drain juice from the tank and the pressed yeah. fraction. So the pressed wine to be married immediately. I do not like separating out pressed yeah. wine from free run. Uh, we did, we did that in 2020 because we were concerned about smoke taint on certain lots. And uh-huh. I just am like, Oh, never want to do this again if I don't have to. So <laughs> I just feel like the wine's so much more harmonious with those two components. So we yeah. do, um, now that we have a little bit more equipment, we, we press it to a tank. We'll taste as we're pressing as well for tannin extraction. But I think tannin extraction happens more during fermentation. That's the time to look, to look at that, um, component pressing. I feel like if you're pressing at the correct moment, sure. The harder you press, the more tannin, that tannic, that small portion of juice will get, but it's, it's a small portion and in, you know, what's going to be a larger free run plus plus pressure pressing sort of um cuvee so yeah we we press pretty hard we press basically until we can't get any more juice out is usually the way it goes occasionally we'll cut things early but um when the when the grapes are still a little wet but and that all gets yeah it goes to tank and then we usually rack it the next day into barrel if it's a dry wine if it's still um actively fermenting usually we'll let it ferment in tank finish out in tank and then put it into barrel when it's dry or almost dry so we try to put things in barrel when there's still a lot of dissolved carbon dioxide in the wine from fermentation this is Um, like one of the tools of natural winemaking right totally it's yeah the the timing of timing i guess is a good way to put it because you don't if you let something sit a little too long and it, it expresses a little too much co2 then you get a little more oxygen exposure than you want, which can lead to some of the things you don't want because you aren't working with sulfur a lot of the times or anything else. Exactly, exactly. So say we do want to, say a wine's still sweet and we put it, we it's pressed and its components are in a tank together, but we do know that we want it off the gross leaves and barrel. We'll actually rack it when it's still a little bit sweet um, into an, into another tank to get it off those gross leaves and then put it to barrel when it's still a little effervescent. Um, but I also try not to put things too sweet to barrel because it just feels a little bit more risky. You can kind of get things because again, you don't have that, like kind of that mass fermentations slowed down so much that it's Mm. nice to keep everything in in one unit, (laughs) um, until it's pretty dry. But like as well, soon as it's dry, having still has that CO2 in it and putting it to barrel then. Is well, and I, I mean, I know that tanks aren't sterile, but it seems like barrels have a lot more nooks and crannies to house little things that could totally. get in your wine. Is, yeah. that, is that a concern yeah. at all? Yeah. And for red wine in particular, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the Brett thing or what, but yeah, going slightly sweet when things like activity yeast activity is starting to decline to barrel yeah it just feels like a bad combination it's like there's not enough uh, there's not a critical mass of yeast to like kind of elbow out the other microbes you might not want in the room and so i feel like if there's some sugar there they're like yeah this i don't know right yeah there's there's room for us here to grow so all right so now we're in barrel and I, i i'm assuming I don't know. I shouldn't assume. What what happens now? Yeah. Once it's in barrel, early on, we top 
quite frequently, again, to keep as much of that dissolved CO2 in the wine as possible. Mm-hmm. So we might top every, uh, and also the barrels, even though we um, steam them and rinse them before we go into them. And so they are pretty well hydrated. They kind of drink a little bit more wine in the beginning. So yeah. you need to top them more frequently, but we'll top probably every week to two weeks. Um, and, you know, a lot of malactic happens in barrel too. So again, just trying to keep them as topped as possible without overflowing them. Cause there is a little activity that the malactic produces and it can overflow the barrels. So, um, we kind of watch that phase and then, and then we'll move into like every three weeks topping and then every month topping, um, just as the wine, um, as the wine ages and as the barrels drink less and depending on the humidity in the cellar during the winter, um, it's pretty dry in our cellar. So we have to top a lot more. Yeah. But then comes spring, things get a little more humid and then we don't have to top quite as much. And so, and then Tim and I will usually taste, um, each lot barrel by barrel throughout the aging process. Um, Is that so? We're in January. Do you start tasting around now? Uh, I mean, I'm sure you're tasting throughout, but is there yeah. a are you starting to taste now in a different way? Totally. Once malactic's complete and you've given the wines a little bit of time to rest, right. now is about the time where you feel like, okay, I can start seeing what the wine, the character will be. I feel like you know, after harvest from like in November, December, even early January, depending on the year, um, the wine's still like in a teenage phase and you're like, this is awkward. Like take it with a grain of salt. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to let it figure itself out. I've ruined it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Not freak out ourselves. We need the rest. We're exhausted from harvest. It's every, in everyone's best interest to just let them, let them sleep for a minute. And then, yeah, and then we'll start tasting um, for our earlier release wines. We'll start tasting for blending for our other wines just to kind of monitor them and see how they're developing. And we'll take notes and and maybe if a barrel, this is so this is the, the tricky part with the tech technical sheets uh, for us. Generally, we do add a little bit of sulfur to the lot prior to bottling. But on occasion, if we're tasting through a lot and one barrel in particular just seems a little odd we may sulfur that one if it's like, oh, this barrel's strangely getting oxidized and the rest of the lot isn't, which can happen. Or yeah. it's getting microbial and the rest of the lot isn't, even though you know we had the same cleaning protocol for our barrels. We smelled every barrel but before filling it um, to check that you know they all smell clean, um, yeah. no vinegar or anything. For whatever reason, certain barrels take their own their own path and so (laughs) while this isn't frequent um occasionally we will need to like spot sulfur one barrel and that for us is a great way to keep the overall sulfur is low in the lot and keep the like fruit and the vivacity of the wine intact without um without getting you know certain spoilage characteristics either which i think can distract from sense of place at the end of the day right all right so we if we're in the year we're in barrel i I, i'm assuming you're sending samples out for testing like you mentioned the scorpion test but you you keep it you're monitoring i think that's a big tool in natural winemaking right is actual testing and monitoring yeah yeah so this is something new that we finally again there's been like a lot of kind of financial um 
I guess, backstops to a lot of our practices, but we're at a point, a point now where we um, can financially afford to send out every single wine for uh, volatile acidity analysis every month. Um, so before we were just using our taste buds, which are great. I mean, having your, your palate, your palate is your number one, like tool. Um, but, um, sending things out for VA and seeing if your, your volatile acidity, how fast it is rising, which it will without sulfur over time. But, um, the rate at which it's doing that is, is important to note. And then it's also kind of just fun to, match that to what your palate's perceiving where you're like, Oh, wow, this wine really carries the VA well, or this wine mm. doesn't, or I thought the VA was lower or higher. Um, is always kind of an interesting thing because there's so much, so many other flavor components that are happening. So, but yeah, right. really good to, that's the, I would say that's the main thing we monitor throughout, um, besides just tasting. So. Right. Do you send out for um, Malik completion or do you in-house test? For oh, yes, we do. That is, yeah, okay. that's it. That's the other one. So kind of in... Monitoring that. Yeah, monitoring that after harvest. So, you know, in depending on when the lot came in, in October and November, we're doing a lot of malactic. Um, and we do want, yeah, to see things that go malactic dry. And we let everything go through native malactic fermentation or reds, whites, and rosés. So we don't stop our whites or rosés from going through malactic. Right. And would that be a reason to to filter potentially if, if, you, if one just never went through? Um, it could that- be. I have had one wine um, that was, I guess, probably low enough pH that the malactic couldn't compete, complete. The, the, yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. That since, especially when you're working with low pH, like you want to to be on the stable, more stable side, you you also have that a little more slow malolactic conversion and and sometimes stalling. Because yeah, of yeah, that one I um, didn't filter. I felt comfortable enough that if the wine had it was a low enough malic number that it wouldn't. Had it completed right. in bottle, it wouldn't push the cork out or anything from the carbon yeah. dioxide, and and the wine would have tasted fine with a teeny little like frizzante. Yeah, exactly, a yeah. small amount. I'm like, okay, looking at you, Basque country for this one. So <laughs> if you guys can do it, this can be fine for this wine. But we actually, I've been, you know, kind of surprised with our lower pHs that we haven't had issues. Must have a really strong mallow house bug yeah that's good yeah everybody Mm -hmm. needs one yeah exactly (laughs) okay so a lot of monitoring i'm just i you know i'm trying to draw out some of the the things that you know maybe we take for granted and you know as as winemakers but if you're getting into this and like really you know don't want to screw up like these are some of the you know because you're you aren't intervening in a way you aren't intervening you're just monitoring and observing closely and and making decisions i mean you are intervening but you're you're allowing the wine's natural processes to preserve itself rather than bringing in outside preservatives as it, much as possible yeah exactly i think that you know one of the biggest trip ups that like home winemakers can make and i've done it too when i've when i was making wines in my backyard in davis and had school and other things to think about where you know, if I didn't have a really strict topping schedule and a monitoring schedule throughout aging, it would just slip another week and then maybe slip another <laughs> week. And it's just like, 
you know, really, it's one of those things that's not, I mean, monitoring them and tasting them is really fun, but topping is like kind of not that exciting. So <laughs> yes, I don't know. it's I one felt- of those things. It's like cutting your toenails. It's, it just is important. <laughs> but, uh, yep. Yeah. Cause until your wine's vinegar, you're reverse right. irreversibly <laughs> then you you know you don't feel preventative measures are always some of yeah, the hardest things thing. i yeah. mean for us like, for for our health it's just like human nature to not deal with things <laughs> until there's a problem in front of us so yeah uh best to do that at home rather than on a large four ton lot or whatever a, a 20 acre vineyard <laughs> exactly um, learning learning your lessons on the small scale is is always <laughs> is always great you get the st- same humbling experience but it doesn't mean that you're you know gut, <laughs> gutting your own financial future <laughs> <laughs> exactly um okay well so when you go to bottle how long i mean so we we're talking about the the carignan so what what are we how long are you in barrel yeah um the carignan uh, usually about 18 months. We did do okay. two versions where we, um, in 2019, we did a kind of a regular 18 months and then a long élevage, which was an additional year on top of that. So two okay. and a half years. Um, it was a little bit of a warmer, riper, like, I don't know, 2019 was just so abundant. We had really great, for California, really great winter rains heading into that vintage. And then we had you know, abundant sunlight and a heavy crop and everything just felt like very abundant. So it wasn't like overly ripe, but it, it felt like we could keep it in barrel a little bit longer and, um, and it would really age beautifully. So, um, that year we, we did kind of two different versions and I like them both, um, just different wines. So we usually try to, I like things to feel complete before putting them in bottle. Um, I don't know how to describe this. This is like really kind of one of those things that I feel like you have to taste with people to help describe it to them. But um, even though we're using neutral oak, like do the tannins feel like they would relax now at the same rate when you put them in like a pretty reductive environment? So in a bottle, a reductive environment. So like, does everything, do all the components of the wine feel like they would age sync? like in sync with one another. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, that's yeah. when we bottle. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So, so it's not just a set schedule or anything. You're kind of just, again, paying attention and making decision based on mm, intuition. Yeah. And with wines, we do make year over year, like that same plot of Venturi carrying on every year. There tend to be patterns, um, even though there's vintage variation. So you know, it's not like one year we only age it for a year on barrel and another year it's five years, but you know, anywhere from the 18 to like, yeah, 18 to 20 months sort of range is about what we're looking at. Yes. So this, you're talking the 2019, so this is the Ricetti? Um, this is the Venturi. So we did Venturi, make two, okay. we did make two single vineyard Carignans in 2019. Okay. I am. Yeah. Oh, Long Elevage, it's called. Yeah. Love that. Okay, I'm just looking on your website now. So, yeah, great. So, and it looks like um, so you did add a little sulfur. I'm guessing around bottling, or yeah, how, how, if you would add some there, how like when would it be added? Usually with sulfur before bottling, it's you know it's in like after the all the barrels are racked up to tank. Um, 
we might, if we've tasted the lot, we'll taste the lot all together on like kind of like a bench blend trial where we put small amounts proportionately of what the blend would taste like. And, and sometimes we send that out for analysis and, um, but mostly it's based on taste. And um, in that last transfer, even though we try to keep all of the, we rack the wines as little as possible once they're in barrel. And we try to be very gentle in the process of trans racking them from barrel to tank. Um, just kind of tasting and thinking, okay, does this wine, is it tending, would it tend more towards oxidation? And if it does, we're going to add a little bit of, a little bit of sulfur. Um, and the amount will depend on, on how oxidized we think it could get. So because no matter what, we're going to pick up a little bit of oxygen, even though we gas rack them, um, it's just more or less to protect the wine from barrel to tank and then from tank into the bottle because it does get jostled around quite a bit. Got it. Um, great. I mean, any 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 other final notes on that wine or that process? That's, that is what does it. I think, I mean, the one thing that I think is interesting about like that I found uh, to be unique about this wine and this process is... Um, the extended maceration process when we press this wine, it's it's kind of crazy. It it tastes like like mud water, like dirt water. It does not taste very good when we're pressing it. And it's more like a faith in the process of it. Um, and then as wow. it ages and as it's in bottle, it actually the fruit character comes out more and more and more, which is totally reverse from most wines. Usually you bottle them yeah. and they're the fruitiest they're going to be. And then the fruit characters drop out faster than the, than the other characters develop. And so I don't know what it is about the process, but it kind of acts reverse, you know, or opposite to most, most wines and how they age. I know. I love that. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's fascinating. <laughs> Always. And scary. I, I would imagine <laughs> yeah. I would be terrified of. <laughs> I know the first year, the first year uh, we did it in 2014, I was just like, oh man, this is because this is a technique that I had learned um, part, like the whole cluster kind of a little bit more extended maceration was a technique I'd learned at um, Lyon Barral in the South of France. This is the way that uh -huh. he, he made his carignan. And I just loved, loved the texture and the fruit and everything of the wine, but uh, different wine. His did not taste like dirt when we pressed it. And so that first year I was like, oh gosh, okay, well, we won't repeat this again. And, uh, but then tasting the wine in bottle and as it developed, I was like, oh yes, we definitely will do this again. It's, it's great. So That's I don't great. know. Yeah. I tend to, maybe, maybe Tim doesn't love this, but I tend to like never get rid of wine. I mean, even if a barrel, <laughs> even if a barrel does, unless it's total vinegar, that's, yeah. there's no coming back from that. But if something, you know, if a barrel goes a little bit mousy from time to time, we don't have too much of that, thank goodness, with our pHs again, I think helps. But, um, or we had a wine that went ropey, which is something I learned about in Davis. Yeah. And I had never, I was just like, oh, that's, that's weird. I don't think I'll ever experience that. But one of our Chardonnay barrels in a lot went ropey. None of the other barrels did. And it was the strangest, strangest wine I've ever tasted in my life. I mean, and the, what can you do anything with that? Uh, it ended up going away. I don't know, something else in oh. the aging process. We didn't have sulfur in the wine. There was something else. I guess some other new microbe came on the scene and metabolized some of that <laughs> texture. <laughs> it was so bizarre. I don't know. Um, and 
And yeah. I, I've heard that about mouse as well. I mean, that sounds like it's documented at this point. If you if you haven't added sulfur, mouse will ultimately age away. Yeah. Have you experienced that? I mean, very like I don't feel like I have a great sample size, but yes, I have experienced this with one barrel where it just okay. it just resolved itself. Um, but I'm always fascinated with this too because Tim and I will taste together, and for whatever reason, our body chemistries. Uh, my, I can taste mouse more than he can. Mm. Probably, I guess I have a higher pH saliva than he does. But so <laughs> it's like, you know, there's there's that factor too that I'm always kind of curious about. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, is it you. that the mouse is gone, or I just can't taste it today because my body chemistry is different today uh, than it was two months ago. Yeah, no, yes. I, I've, I have that too. Where I'm, I'm very sensitive to most things, like you know, whether it's hydrogen sulfide or mm-hmm. TCA or or mouse or any Brett. I'm like, guys, do you, this ru- this wine is ruined? They'll be like, what are you talking about? It's delicious. I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay, well, you guys enjoy that. Then. Yeah, yeah. Good, <laughs> nice for you. <laughs> so great as a winemaker, not as fun as a drinker to have right. that sensitive <laughs> of a of a palate. Yeah. Uh, well, Martha, thank you so much. I really kept you for quite a while and i really appreciate you sharing all this i do you want to share any closing thoughts about making natural wine i mean i you know i yeah anything you want i mean i think um it's for anybody out there listening who does want to experiment with making their own wines naturally it is so much fun and um it's a little bit more fun too if you have a, a few a few friends to help you out. Um, in my yeah. opinion, I think it's a very like <laughs> wonderful kind of community activity. Um, but also, don't be don't be afraid to 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 not kind of play it safe. There's a lot of a lot of text uh, and informations out there, and if you go to your you know local kind of hobby winemaking store. Um, they'll be telling you all of the things you need to buy and to add to your wine. And the grape has everything you need to make wine. Yeah. So yeah. just, just trust I, it and have fun. And, you know, it's a and, small batch. You can always, you can always uh, let it, let it go water your plant, <laughs> plants in the yard if it doesn't turn out, which I have had to do before. So, um, and, um, Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you talking. It and was... explaining all this and uh, yeah i'm sure there's so much more that you can get into but we don't it, have time <laughs> it was totally my pleasure thanks for having me Thank you.